this has been a hard year, pandemic, uh, appropriate calls for racial justice and a reckoning with the history of systemic racism in our country. So many challenges, an election that was very divisive. It can be really easy to just want to stay home because it's it's hard to, to meet with people who might disagree about some of these things. What you're missing if you don't go back, there is something sacred and special and distinct that happens when you hear the Word of God echoing around you, not just in the voice of a preacher through a computer screen, but when you hear brothers and sisters near you say amen. That's, that's irreplaceable. That, you, you can't get that at home on your couch. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Matt Merker. Matt serves as Director of Creative Resources and Training for Getty Music, and has contributed to several modern hymns, including the popular song, He Will Hold Me Fast. He's also the author of Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People from Crossway. Today, Matt and I discuss the central importance of corporate worship for the life of the Christian. He shares his thoughts on the effect the COVID-19 pandemic could have on church gatherings in the future, explains why the concept of a church liturgy is a good and necessary thing, and offers encouragement to the person who may be toying with the idea of not returning to church once the pandemic is over. Let's get started. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. So as we record this, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. And although various vaccines are being deployed all around the country and the world, it it looks like we're still quite a long way from kind of getting back to any semblance of quote unquote normal life. Uh, and, And as everyone listening right now will know, the pandemic has had a really massive impact on how our churches have been functioning. And in particular, with corporate worship, the rhythm of our gathering together from week to week has really been uh, pretty disrupted in a lot of unprecedented ways. So I guess my first question for you is, if you kind of put on your prophet's hat a little bit, what do you think might be the long-term effects of the pandemic on how Christians, maybe particularly evangelical Christians, view and participate in corporate worship going forward? I think it could have a couple of effects. One, my prayer is that this pandemic would cause us to realize how precious the church gathering is. It is vital that God's people meet. It is what he calls us to do. It is of the essence of a church that we gather. The Sunday meeting is a chief means of grace by which God encourages and nourishes and sanctifies his people. And so to not have that or to have that curtailed in various ways, to be able to meet, but to have to do it in masks and sing through masks or have a shorter service or not be able to take the Lord's Supper or have to sit six feet away. Churches have had you know, various strategies of, of trying to abide by what is uh, healthy and, and wise, mm. but they've all made it different. And, uh, and, and many churches have had, have had to take a break from meeting in person. And so hopefully my prayer is that the, the pandemic will help us to prize and and treasure the church gathering more, that when we come back, it'll be better than ever. Mm. On the other hand, my fear is that 
Some may get too used to uh, online streaming, quote unquote, church services. I don't actually believe that there is such a thing as online church, technically, theologically. I think it's great that churches have tried to use technology to teach the Bible, to encourage people to get together for, for virtual prayer meetings, but it's not the same. Uh, we can't baptize over the internet. I don't think we can take the Lord's Supper over the internet. And so I fear that that some uh, who have embraced technology for good reasons, for trying to keep proclaiming the gospel, for people who are interested in hearing it, uh, continue to be able to encourage and teach their people. I don't want us to get too used to that. Uh, the in-person, embodied, physical gathering of the body of Christ, his people, is still vital. And so we've got to make sure that it is when the pandemic's over. Mm. Yeah, and let's dig into that a little bit, uh, just the in, the central importance of corporate worship. Uh, in the foreword of your book, written by Ligon Duncan, uh, he quotes a Protestant historian by the name of Hugh Oliphant, Hughes Oliphant Old, which is just an awesome name, uh, I think. Oh, yeah. So he writes, we worship God because God created us to worship him. Worship is at the center of our existence, at the heart of our reason for being. And I think that likely resonates with, with many of us, but maybe even in particular, those who might want to emphasize that all our lives are meant to be worshiped to God, not just what we do on Sunday mornings. So maybe speak to that dynamic a little bit. What's so important about corporate worship, this gathering together of Christians in a single spot, you know, in a church building even, uh, why is that so important and how does that relate to a more general idea that our lives are meant uh, for worship of God. Yeah, individual all-of-life worship and corporate gathered worship aren't uh, exclusive. They're reinforcing. They're complementary. So, of course, the purpose of life is worshiping and glorifying the triune God. We do that as we drive in our cars, as we do the dishes, as we work in our various callings, uh, as we care for family, as we love our neighbor, as we seek to be good citizens and do acts of justice and mercy in the public square. But God has set apart a people for himself, and he's called that people to gather regularly. Jesus connects our exercise of the keys of the kingdom as a congregation to when we are gathered in his name in Matthew 18. Uh, so some of the most important work that we do as God's people comes when we gather. Uh, so, and, and we see all throughout the New Testament instructions for what to do when you gather as a church, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. There is a distinct time that the New Testament expects believers to meet for God's praise, for edifying one another. And uh, that then sends us out as scattered members of the church to continue to glorify and honor God through our lives the rest of the week. Uh, so corporate worship, in a sense, is a summation of all that we're doing the rest of our lives. Uh, we're all worshiping God in our various ways, and then we come together and we do it together. But it also equips us for all of life worship as we're then sent out to live a life that is a sacrifice of praise. Mm. I feel like I've often heard uh, different pastors sort of use two different ways of describing the relationship between Sunday, let's say, uh, in a, as a stand-in for corporate worship, and the rest of the week. Uh, some would seem to emphasize that uh, Sunday is preparation for uh, living out uh, our lives as followers of Christ, worshiping God, you know, Monday to Saturday. And others would kind of view almost Monday to Saturday as preparation for Sunday, gathering together uh, to worship. Do you think there's any validity to that kind of dynamic, and, and which of those would you lean more towards? Both. 
I think it's all true. <laughs> I have nothing else to say. I would just want to say yes. Yeah, right. Do you think um, it's possible to overemphasize corporate worship? I can't really imagine that. No, I think that uh, at least in our day and age, uh, corporate worship for many, and I, I, I think this is subconscious, I think it's with the best of intentions, corporate worship is really experienced as individual worship on steroids. I come to church and I'm led in music by this awesome band that stirs my emotions and I'm able to have a more intimate experience of fellowship with God the Holy Spirit and I'm giving this supercharge of spiritual energy and power from an inspiring talk. Um, I think sadly too often in evangelicalism, the things that people get out of the corporate worship gathering are really things about their own personal worship, which, which are not mm. bad. It's not bad to be encouraged by the sermon. It's not bad to have a sense of, of God's presence uh, by his spirit. His spirit dwells in us individually and corporately. But I do, I do think that there needs to be more of an emphasis placed on the fact that when we gather, it is the spirit that dwells in us corporately. The local church is the temple where the spirit dwells. Uh, when, when we gather, it's not just me being built up or me praising God and pouring out my heart to God. It is us as a whole church being formed corporately and expressing together our joint thanks and praise to the God who has redeemed us in Christ. Uh, so eternity will be, in one sense, corporate worship. We will all be gathered around the throne. Uh, and I don't know exactly what we will be doing every single moment or instance in the new creation. Uh, but I think corporate worship today is anticipation for the eternity that we'll, we will enjoy glorifying God together as his people in the new Jerusalem. Yeah, it seems like that understanding of corporate worship, or a, let's just say of Sundays, what we're doing on Sundays, that we're kind of coming, that I'm there to worship God and kind of get my tank filled up, is, is such a common understanding. And, and often we don't really fully grasp the uh, the the actual true value and significance of uh, something that's happening that's bigger than just my own experience of God. Yeah, totally. And the thing is, it's so dangerous because there is a truth in there. When we come, when God gathers us for corporate worship, He fills us. He serves us before we serve Him. He pours out His grace. He teaches us. He, he encourages us through the gospel. He speaks by His word. Spiritual, supernatural stuff is happening when He gathers the church, and it should fill us up. And when we meet with God's people, they serve us, and they fill us up where we're empty. They encourage us. They comfort us. They hug us in non-pandemic times. Uh, treat one another with a holy kiss. They serve the Lord's Supper to us. They baptize us when we become a Christian. And so we are filled up, we are blessed, we are encouraged, but yet we're also pouring ourselves out at the same time. We are pouring ourselves out in an offering of praise vertically to God. We're pouring ourselves out horizontally in service and love and edification to others. And so, yes, we come to church to be served by God and his people, but we also come to church to serve God and his people. The things happen simultaneously and they reinforce each other. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, you've said that, uh, quote, there's a connection between how a congregation understands itself to be a church and the way it worships as a church. And so I think that connects to what we're talking about right now. Unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think the more a congregation is aware of their identity as a corporate entity, as a 
body, the body of Christ, temple for his spirit, the outpost of God's kingdom on earth, authorized to, to represent God as his ambassadors. When we understand that's who we are, it gives shape to the things that we're doing. Oh, that's why we're singing songs about how Christ is king. Because our hope isn't in any earthly king. It's in, it's in Jesus Christ, the only true Lord of all creation. That's why we spend so much time confessing our sin in prayer, because we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we understand that God speaks to us in his word and convicts us of sin. And it is appropriate for us as a sinful, though redeemed people, to acknowledge that before God. And so it, it just... Just like if you understand yourself to be a member of your particular family or a citizen of a particular nation, well, that influences what you do. You know, I'm a citizen of America. When I go watch my lovable losers, the New York Mets play, they sing <laughs> the, the national anthem of America happens to be sung. Uh, that's because that's where we're meeting in America. You know, so those things are so basic that we don't really even notice them. But when we gather as God's people, we're singing the, the national anthems of the kingdom of God in, in the hymns that we sing. And so we're being further formed and matured and developed as citizens of that kingdom who love its king and who abide by his laws and his priorities. Hmm. Yeah, and that connection, though, between who we are and what we do also goes the other way. And uh, you take the analogy of your family eating dinner together, and you write, uh, who we are as a family shapes what we do but then what we do together when we gather around the family table shapes who we are. Uh, our meal flows from and reinforces our identity as a family. And, and that seems like a really important point that maybe we don't always uh, always unpack the way we should. So help us understand that. What do, how, how do those two, how, how does who we are as Christians, as a, a local church, and then what we're doing together uh, in worshiping God together, how does that second part actually form the first? Yeah, so you, you come together as, as a church, and because you are the redeemed people of God, you sing of God's grace. For example, you sing a song like Grace Greater Than Our Sin. Why? Because grace is what we have received. God's grace has drawn us into right relationship with him through Christ. Um, and so... Singing that reflects who we are. We are not those who come with something to bring. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's our motto. But singing it reminds us of that because it's easy to forget that. And it's mm -hmm. easy to think I need to be better this week so that I can be more confident of God's love for me. I yeah. need to, I must, I want to... And actually, his love for us is because of his love for us. It's because of his grace. It's unearned. It's free. And so I sing that, and I'm, we sing that, and we're reminded of the fact that we're going to go out of here today, and we're going to live as a community of people who are recipients of grace. So now, in our common life together, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our families, in our small groups, that's going to inform the way, you know, recipients of grace— show grace, and we're going to show it to one another. And that's part of how we're going to be a witness to the watching world is as a grace-receiving people, we will now be a grace-giving people. 
We will show hospitality when it's inconvenient. We will cover over a multitude of sins uh, because we have been forgiven. We will in- engage and embody a different type of discourse, even around disagreements, than the world shows. We will have deep relationships across ethnic lines or lines of class or nationality that make the world ponder and, and wonder how, could, how this could be, all because we're a grace-receiving people, which has been reinforced by the fact that that is the message that we heard in the song that we sang when we gathered. Mm. Yeah, hearing you talk about just the power of the how, how we worship together, kind of forming the who, who we are, it makes me even think a little bit of that famous uh, Marshall McLuhan quote related to the, the impact of various forms of media, that the medium is the message. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you, see, do you see any connection there? Definitely. Um, it's, a, it's a hugely useful truth uh, that, that has a lot of, of implications. And w- when it comes to corporate worship, uh, we have to always remember that everything we're doing when the church gathers is teaching something about God. It's teaching something right. about the Christian life. It's not neutral. Um, and so in one sense, corporate worship is directed upward at God, of course, because we're gathering to praise and love and thank Him. But in another sense, it's, it's discipleship. It's teaching. It's part of Christian formation. Uh, and so that's subtle and it's it's subliminal but it's something that pastors and song leaders and elders especially need to be aware of. Mm. Yeah, it can be so easy to focus just on you know the verbal content of the songs or of the teaching all of which is so important obviously and yet maybe uh, downplay the significance of the forms and and the way that we're packaging those things and presenting those things because uh, those are significant and that that actually segues into this issue, maybe a broader issue of the idea of liturgy. Yeah. And I'm sure at the mention of that very word, some people listening right now are, are cheering. They're like, yes, the evangelical church needs to recover this idea of liturgy and the value that it can have. Uh, and, but others listening might, might feel this concern about maybe an increasing interest, um, among, especially young, young evangelicals, related to kind of recovering liturgical forms of worship and that feeling cold and stale and maybe uh, easy to abuse. Uh, Maybe others listening are kind of just indifferent. They don't really know what to think about that. They're kind of, they just know what they've always experienced, whatever that might be. So help us think through that. How would you define this idea of liturgy and how might we think about that as Christians when it comes to how we worship together? Yeah, excellent question. Lots there. It's a bit of a buzzword, and so I do think it's important to define it. The The root of the word comes from the idea of a public work. Uh, I think it's helpful to think about liturgy in the sense of what God is doing, what he is working in and through his people as he gathers us for his glory. So li- liturgy is something God does, ultimately, theologically. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when people talk about liturgy, they are talking about certain forms or structures of a service. I prefer to talk about liturgy with the lowercase l, I call it, just referring to the order of the service. A liturgy is the sequence of things that happen when the church meets. Um, and so in that sense, every church has a liturgy, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. If, if Even if the liturgy is just, we have an upbeat opening song, and then someone gives up and gives a few announcements, and then we have three more songs, and then there's a video, and then the pastor gets up and gives a talk. 
That is a liturgy. And that, over time, that liturgy will shape people. It will inform them about certain values. It will communicate uh, certain things about Christianity and the Christian life. Uh, I say content is always more important than form, but form shapes content. Uh, so the liturgy that I just shared, which is almost an exaggeration, it's, but sadly, it's, it's kind of not. There, there are church services I've been to that have singing and have a message, but have very little prayer, or the, the prayer functions kind of like a transition from the songs to the, to the sermon. Yeah, it's just or, so the, the artists can, the musicians can get off the stage yeah. and make room for the pastor. That's really all it's there for. Yes, or uh, church services that have really just the, the the preacher will read a text. It kind of, if you're lucky, uh, or while he's preaching, he'll he'll refer to a, to a few different texts in different places in the Bible. But other than that, there is no time set aside for scripture reading as its own thing. Uh, Ligon Duncan has said the public reading of the Word of God should be an event. Hmm. Paul tells Timothy, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Yeah. So uh, that liturgy, you know, some liturgies are just devoid of things that the Bible says we should do, like commit ourselves to prayer and, and to to the reading of Scripture. But even if you have those things, the way in which they are arranged is significant. And when you look at history. It's illuminating to see that at the Reformation, when a lot of liturgical reform was taking place, uh, A, it's illuminating to see that the Reformers didn't all adopt the exact same liturgy. There was freedom. There's flexibility. But then B, it is also illuminating to see that their liturgies have some patterns and some similarities. Uh, And Jonathan Gibson and Mark Erngay have done us a great service with collecting a lot of those in a book called Reformation Worship. Uh, which I rely on heavily in my books, just shamelessly. I I quote it all the time. Hmm. Uh, Because what you see in that is there's often a scriptural call to worship where the service is begun essentially with God speaking to us. God takes the initiative. He opens things up in a sense because we're reading his word first. His word is setting the agenda. Uh, And when we encounter God's goodness and his holiness and his law, it is appropriate then to confess our sins, either through prayer or through song. Um, and after we've confessed our sins, it is often appropriate to thank God for the grace that he's given us in Christ. And, and once we've recognized the good news that we can be forgiven through repentance and faith in Christ, then often comes the sermon when we are now instructed in that grace and we're instructed how to live in light of it. And so these patterns are simple, they're subtle, But over time, if a church deliberately and wisely structures its liturgy based on these sorts of things, that will communicate to people certain values and certain truths about theology and the Christian faith. Yeah. It seems like your emphasis then is less, as you said, on a specific liturgy being right or wrong, and more on just the importance of intentionality. It seems like that's one of the things that uh, we we maybe... uh, is the most dangerous is just a lack of intentionality when it comes to the order, a lack of acknowledging that how we set up these a corporate worship service matters, not just yeah, the content. Yeah, that's, that's right. Well, I, I actually don't think it's so much a lack of intentionality uh, because I, I actually, for those who have a worship service uh, that is not reflective of those sorts of realities, confession of sin, uh, reminder of God's grace, full of scripture reading. I, 
I actually want to give those churches more credit, and I, I understand them to be doing something deliberate, which I think is dangerous, and having a worship service that has little prayer and little scripture reading and preaching that is often not substantive and not nourishing to the flock. I think that's a danger. It's been a deliberate move to try to make a church service more welcoming to outsiders, which is a great goal and a great motive. And I really appreciate the evangelistic heart behind that. But I, I think that we do need to be more intentional about making our services more saturated with scripture. That doesn't need, mean they need to be six hours long. It means that the truth and the delight and the, the radiance and riches of God's word needs to be what we're really excited and on about when we meet because it's nourishing to the Christian and it gives life to the non-Christian when they hear the good news proclaimed through the word, preached and read and prayed and sung. Mm. So maybe speak to the pastor listening right now who is hearing this and is thinking, you know, I, I resonate with that. I feel like I could do a better job. The leadership team at the church could do a better job of, of intentionally uh, leading the church in worship in a way that does uh, raise up God's word and prayer and all these things in, in the ways that you've discussed here. But maybe they feel a little bit like, I don't, I don't really know how to do that, where to start, or, or even... Uh, if I mention that word, the idea of like, hey, we want to introduce a liturgy, we want to be more intentional about our liturgy, they're thinking, you know, people in my church are going to, they're going to have all of these red flags everywhere because they associate that with, you know, Roman Catholicism or some other kind of high church tradition. That's just not who, who we are. What, what would you say to that guy? I would say, great, you don't have to use the word liturgy. It doesn't matter. Uh, I would say, second, Great to want to make those changes, but you probably do need to go slow and teach on it because when you mess with the Sunday service, people going to notice <laughs> and people going to get uh, you know a little little upset because intense. rightly so the Sunday service is a really ingrained part of our lives and our expectations, uh, and so you got to teach on why you're doing it. Uh, you you can use a sermon series or you can use little little kind of little teaching moments even in the service. We're going to start doing this, guys. And here's why. We're going to start having a prayer confession regularly. Here's why this is so important. Here's where we see this done in Scripture. Let's check out Psalm 51 and see how David confessed his sins to the Lord. We're going to read that now, and then we're going to have a prayer based on that. And you teach people why you're doing it, and you kind of hold their hand through it. You make the changes slow. I think it's really important to have the whole elder board united about this sort of thing. Uh, so it's not just that people could accuse the pastor, oh, you listened to some podcast or you read some book and now you want to try this whole other thing. But it's actually, no, the elders have prayerfully taken time to study the issue of the order of service. You don't have to call it liturgy. And we've prayed for wisdom and we've decided that we want to include more scripture reading. Uh, we want to change the, the, the sequence of the order of where things happen. And these are the reasons why. Um, I, I think that that would be the way that you want to go about it. Yeah, yeah. So maybe going back a little bit to that topic of the pandemic, where we started this conversation, and you mentioned that you kind of foresaw maybe two options, two types of people coming out of this, some who who are longing to be back together uh, in person, worshiping God as a community, and maybe others who have gotten comfortable with uh, the idea of at-home church and, and all that that entails. Um Maybe there's someone listening right now who, who, if they're being honest, they would have to say they actually aren't that excited about 
going back to in-person church. They've appreciated the convenience and the flexibility uh, and maybe just the, the low keyness of uh, sitting at home on their couch in their PJs, you know, watching a service on their phone or on their TV. So rather than, uh, you know, condemn that person, uh, of course, t- tell them, tell them what they'd be missing, uh, what, what glories they'd be missing if they don't return to corporate worship when they can. Uh, I love the question. And I, 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 I understand, uh, you know, it's there when you have in different seasons of life, whether it's sickness uh, whether you're discouraged by the news, uh, this has been a hard year, pandemic, uh, appropriate calls for racial justice and a reckoning with the uh, history of systemic racism in our country. Uh, so many challenges, a, a, an election that was very divisive. It can be really easy to just want to stay home because it's, it's hard to, to meet with people who might disagree about some of these things. Uh, I've, you know, there were times when our church was not meeting in person and I can tell you the coffee's better when I make it at my house, you know? (laughs) Uh, So what you're missing if you don't go back is number one, there is something sacred and special and distinct that happens when you hear the word of God echoing around you, not just in the voice of a preacher through a computer screen, but when you hear brothers and sisters near you say amen to a prayer. And when you're singing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. When Maxine is singing that and she's in her 70s and you've known her for 10 years and you've seen when her husband passed away recently and you know the physical challenges she has. and You see her still singing that and you know that her hope is in the Lord. That's, that's irreplaceable. That, you, you can't get that at home on your couch. Uh, the Lord intends to do deep encouragement to your soul through that sort of thing. You might not always feel it. It might not always leave you on a mountaintop high. It's the type of thing that is more subtle and gradual that happens over weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years. The sort of encouragement and building up that we get from being with our brothers and sisters who love us, who have covenanted with us. But then the second thing, uh, sorry for the long answer, but the flip side is those people need that encouragement from you. Mm, So I need to get up off of my behind and get myself to church because somebody out there needs to hear me singing it as well, or see it in my eyes, or be reminded of something because I may have made an offhand comment at the coffee table. Wasn't that, wasn't that a point of the sermon encouraging? And they were actually checking out during that point. And now they're going to go home and that was actually the point that they really needed to hear. You know, there's just a thousand ways the Lord uses our presence embodied with one another. And we may never know what he's done. We, we may find out in glory how he used the fact that you were there and you said something to Joe in the parking lot. And Joe was really tempted to sin that week. And what you said kept Joe from sinning in in a particular way. We never know what God's going to do. So get off the couch and and, and enjoy it and and be amazed at how God works. Mm, Yeah, yeah. So in addition to being an author, uh, you're maybe most primarily a hymn writer. 
uh, a musician and a, a songwriter. And one of the songs that you've helped to write uh, is the popular hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. And uh, I'm tempted to ask you to sing it for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, but I'll resist that. Um, if you don't know the song, listener, if, if you don't know this song, if you've not heard it, go look it up right now. Push pause, go look it up, listen to it. It's one of those songs that I think um, sticks with you, uh, but it sticks with you because it's got a power uh, to testify beautifully to the, the hope that we have in Christ. Um, so I, I wonder, Matt, could you share a little bit about how that song came to be? I know that you were only part of the story of writing that song and bringing it back uh, to our to our our churches. Yeah, thanks for asking about that. It's a song. The original lyric was written by Ada Habershon in the early 20th century. Uh, the revival preacher uh, Tory was in contact with uh, with Ada Habershon. She was English, and um, expressed that there was a need for the type of song that a convert could sing when, when he's come to Christ. I believe he had met someone who came to Christ and was, wasn't sure if he would always be a Christian and was just trying to figure that out. Can I fall away? Uh, which, of course, we know from Scripture that those who are truly in Christ will remain in Christ, that God keeps us by his grace. Uh, Jesus says, no one can snatch them from, from my hand. Uh, I will keep them to the end. Uh, Jude calls us loved, chosen, and kept uh, by our God. So uh, Ada Habershon wrote a hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. Um, I encountered it uh, because a, hymn, uh, a church member sent me the words and said, do we sing this? I, I saw this online. This, this seems like a great... And I listened to the original tune, which is over 100 years old, um, and it struck me, this, the word struck me as something, first off, that I wanted to sing, that I needed to sing. I have battled doubt and questions from time to time over my Christian life. I've really identified with the man who says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, I've seen a couple of people who I've been very close with uh, over different seasons in my life profess to trust in Christ and, and seem to follow him for a long time, but then turn their back on Jesus, which is quite tragic and, so, and it can so be disorienting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what I would say is that what I've learned as I've studied scripture and, and this, this issue is uh, Christians who sometimes feel a sense of dread or worry or ask, could that ever be, be me? The fact that you're concerned about that is itself a sign that you don't want that to be you, that you you do love Jesus and you want to be kept by him. I, I think generally people who turn their back on Christ, who prove themselves to have never truly have been genuine believers, are not those who tend to sit around and, and, and wonder about that it, normally, it generally. So um, the song was a massive encouragement to my heart, and I thought that the traditional tune was just that. It sounded quite traditional and, and, and sort of uh, uh, didn't have the emotional angst that I sometimes feel in my heart. Uh, and so I had gotten into writing uh, melodies for old hymns, and I tried to set that to music. And I thought that it needed to have as well some more of the truths that really do sustain us when we fear our faith will fail, as the first line says. So that's why I wrote the third verse, uh, which talks about knowing that God's justice has been satisfied because of Christ's death 
and knowing that we've been raised with him to endless life and he is returning for us. Uh, those are the truths that, that really sustain my own heart and I, I think are meant to sustain all, all believers uh, with, with the knowledge that he will indeed hold us till the end. I've often felt that um, nothing unites a congregation together and really reinforces the value, the, like the essential value of corporate worship to our lives, like singing great, great songs together, uh, songs like He Will Hold Me Fast. And I, I wonder, uh, what's it like for you to hear God's people with one voice singing that song that you've, you've poured some of your own life into, it's been meaningful to you? Uh, it's, it's surreal. It's a kind of, it's a unique blessing from the Lord that I don't deserve. Um, there's just a thrill that comes from thinking, wow, the, the Lord used me in some small way to help these people with, with these truths. Uh, it's quite overwhelming. And, uh, yeah, I, all I can say is just, I'm, I'm grateful. And I never intended to sort of I, I wrote this song for myself and, and for my my own church. You know, it was not my intent to sort of publish it or, or record it. And uh, God seemed to just have plans for it that were beyond what I could have imagined. And so I'm extremely grateful. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder, uh, I'm sure you've written many, many songs over the years, written melodies, new melodies for, for old songs. What do you think it is about this song in particular that has kind of led it to be, to gain such traction and take hold of so many people and, and congregations? Oh, that's a great question. I, I, I do think the, it's so reassuring to know that he will keep us to the end. Because uh, I, I think many people uh, have, have experienced those questions or, or those doubts. And there, there's, not many other songs, I guess, out there that really just kind of come out and say, no, he will. He, mm, he, he will yeah. keep you. Uh, John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Um, so I, if, 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 the, if the melody that the Lord sort of gave me and allowed me to write has, has helped people to sing that, that it's, it's, but it's the truths that, that people are grabbing onto. I can't really explain it. I've, I've written several other songs that I think are pretty great, and they don't go anywhere. So there's a, <laughs> there's a deep mystery to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and, and to remind us afresh, I think, of just that, the potential for corporate worship, being with other Christians, hearing them singing the truths of Scripture alongside of us, hearing God's Word proclaimed to us, praying together. The, the real power that that can have in our lives as Christians and how much we need that. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great to be here. That was Matt Merker on the central importance of corporate worship for the life of the Christian. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Corporate Worship, How the Church Gathers as God's People, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show? Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.